Real Cuff Radio will begin in a minute. Hey, today on Real Cuff, we are going to be talking about some transgender issues, and we have a guy named Walt Hires, and he actually uh, was a transgender, has gone through it, became a, went from a male to a female, and one of the things I want to say is you may not want to have your children listening to this show, and uh, the other thing, too, I want to say, if you know somebody or you have somebody in your family or you are somebody yourself that's going through the hormone or getting ready to or getting ready to have an operation, you know, you might want to listen to this show first because I believe it can be a lifesaver. But I want you to hear the words this guy says. Welcome to Real Cuff Radio, and I've got someone on the line tonight that knows a lot about the transgender generation. I want to say, first of all, I want to thank him for being on here because it takes a lot of courage to do this. I know that you get backlash from uh, LGBT community and everything else, but I declare this guy is a Moses for the transgender generation, and I declare he's going to set the captives free. So today we've got Walt Heyer. And how are you doing today, Walt? I'm doing outstanding. It's nice to be on with you. And I've got Julie on the phone, too. How are you, Julie? Hello. Fantastic. Walt, if you just start and kind of share your testimony and uh, just let them know how you ended up, you know, in this transgender community. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, I was a four-year-old kid and started cross-dressing, and my grandmother uh, started affirming me by helping me cross-dress. And, um, you know, and looking back on that now, what I realized was the her affirming me in this cross-gender behavior was um, was child abuse and destructive emotionally and psychologically and eventually uh, planted the seed that was very hard to uh, dismiss that seed of transgender ideology gender dysphoria gender confusion Uh, even though i had a great desire and belief that god had made me in the wrong body um, it takes years uh, decades to finally unravel all that Uh, stuff that was planted in my fertile little mind at the age of four so that that little uh, start with grandma at the age of four um, stayed with me um, throughout my early life Um, and as a result of uh, my grandmother cross-dressing me and me having this desire um, my uncle thought it was fair game to molest me so uh, he took to molesting me when I was about eight years old as a way of sort of teasing and mocking my um, cross-gender behavior. And um, But I continued to persevere through all of that and uh, eventually got into high school. And, and even I was sort of had a, in my own head, I sort of had a dual personality it wasn't outward but i i kept thinking all day long about this uh becoming a female and while i was living the life of a young teen boy and playing in sports and having friends and 
eventually being in car clubs and doing all the guy things, there was still the girl that was living inside my head, that desire and belief that I was born in the wrong body. And eventually, um, like many people who identify as a transgender person, um, discovered, you know, I was not homosexual. The vast majority of them, over 90% of them are not homosexual. They're just dealing with uh, deep problems uh, in, in about their identity, what they're supposed to look like and present themselves. So that's what transgenders do. So I ended up um, falling in love with a gal at church and we got married and had two kids. And on all outward appearances was I was quite okay. Uh, inside though, I was still struggling with what had happened by that time, 20 or 25 years later. And I uh, eventually went uh, to school and studied um, uh, engineering and drafting and became an associate design engineer on the Apollo space missions. And when um, I no longer wanted to do that, I went into the auto industry and became the national operations manager for American Honda Motor Company for all the ports of entry and the shipping of cars and handling of contracts. It was a very nice job. So, but I was still struggling uh, with what had started when I was four. It just never went away. There's never a day where it was um, not haunting me uh, about being a different gender. So uh, by the time I was in my late 30s, I started going to one of those people they call gender specialists. And um, I can tell you, if you ever see a gender specialist and you have gender problems, those are the last people you want to go to. So I, uh, I went to the gender specialist. This particular one had, um, his name was Dr. Paul Walker, who, was, who had drafted the original uh, standards of care for transgenders in 1979. So he was considered a world-leading expert in diagnosing and treating people who had struggled with gender dysphoria, which I had. So when he interviewed me and diagnosed me with gender dysphoria, he told me the only way that it's, you can cure it is to take hormones and undergo gender reassignment surgery. So, but he said there's a two year waiting period. So I, I went through all of the hormone stuff and waited the two years, divorced my wife, left my kids, went and had surgery and became Laura Jensen, lost my career in the auto industry, and uh, that was in October of 1983, and uh, uh, October 25th of 1983, as a matter of fact, on my birthday. Um, and from that time forward, um, I have never really regained any kind of uh, ability to um, gain employment because back in the 80s that was taboo i mean a transgender person was um a pretty pretty radical departure from any of the norms so um i struggled with alcoholism after that and and um eventually um started crawling my way back to sanity through psychotherapy um while living as a transgender female named Laura Jensen and um, and eventually um, after eight years um, during that eight-year period I was studying psychology and at UC Santa Cruz and realized that 
transgender people are suffering from undiagnosed and untreated uh, what they call comorbid disorders, which is a fancy word for an additional disorder that is just kind of under the surface that is actually driving the the desire to change genders. And, and in my case, um, it was the sexual abuse and the cross-dressing actually caused me to have a psychological comorbid disorder, which, by the way, 62.7% of all people who identify as a transgender person has a co a comorbid disorder that requires psychological treatment. In fact, if they were treated properly, they wouldn't have the desire to change genders. That's how serious those disorders are. So affirming somebody in a cross-gender identity is actually causing them to eventually have a mental disorder, uh, depression, anxiety, and that's why we see uh, a large portion of this population, over 40% of them, will attempt suicide just out of complete despair for the fact that all people do is give you hormones and cut body parts off and identify you in a different gender without ever dealing with the underlying uh, comorbid disorders that were causing you to um, have the desire to change genders, which started for me many years later. So. Uh, once I found that out, I began uh, looking into psychology and treating the disorder with psychotherapy and help um, through the church. And eventually, thank the good Lord, um, I was able to um, what they call detransition, which is a fancy word for going back to reality and sanity, and um, reassumed my name as well. That's happened. That was 25 years ago. So. Uh, I've been married for 20 years, and um, now I'm I'm on a mission to um, to stand with the Lord and to help people understand that there isn't anybody um, that identifies as a transgender person uh, who needs hormones or surgery. This is a a total what I I call um, one of the biggest medical. Uh, falsehoods of all time. It's, it's the idea that this is medically hey, necessary. Hey, Walt. Yeah. Walt, let me ask you a question. Let me go back to Dr. Paul Walker. Do yeah. you think that the doctors get kickbacks from sending you to have the surgery? You know, you, you never know. I mean, they, they do write the letter and they do send it to a specific surgeons. So, you know, that possibility certainly exists. Um, and Walker was a friend of Biber, and, and um, you know, Biber had, by the time I went to Biber, he had The reason done... I ask that is because they do it so fast, and they try to get you in there. You know, there's a two-year two waiting period, but we got to get you going now, if you, you know. And when you start yeah. rushing stuff like that, there's usually some kind of something going on in the background. Well, it's either that or they're afraid you're going to change your mind and find out that they're... Uh, they're duping you um, and you know so most of us if if we had uh, someone helping us uh, understand what's going on and waited uh, five or ten years we'd never do it yeah gotcha okay yeah. so I want to ask something about your grandmother did, yeah did your did your grandma I, I know you had a brother correct yeah so did your grandmother 
anything happen with your brother or was it just you? Well, that was interesting. We had, we both had different grandparents. And so my brother always went to my uh, other grandmother's house and I went to this one. Neither grandmother ever had both of us at the same time. Oh, got you. Okay. Uh, did, did she want a granddaughter or you never did find out why she started doing this, did you? No, I have no idea whether, um, what, I, I just don't know. You know, that was, that's always been a mystery to me. Yeah. Yeah. And they were from Texas, correct? Yeah. Yeah. They were from, uh, just outside of Dallas, Texas. And, um, so yeah, I, I don't, um, I don't know why she did that. Uh, I think I, I encouraged her to, uh, but you know, that shouldn't be, um, reason enough. And I think that's what I see so much today. Um, primarily mothers are, you know, buying into this uh, transgender ideology and helping their kids if their boys become girls. And, and, you know, I saw a television show that was so startling where they were filming the young boy who had been mother had been dressing him as a girl. He had long hair and mom's brushing his hair and the cameras are rolling. And, and, um, so all of a sudden the kid turned around and looked at mom with the camera rolling and said, would you love me if I was a boy? Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I, there's, you know, there's one, there's one over in, the, in the Europe, at 12 years old and, and the, the mom helped him, you know, get on the, the hormones and everything else, you know, well at 14, he realized, you know, what am I doing? And so now yeah. they're, they're, they won't, they won't do the surgery to remove the breast or fix the breast or whatever. So they're having to go to North, they're going to South Korea to have it done because they will not do it until he's 16, you know, where he lives. But, they were not supposed to even start any hormone stuff till he was 16, but they did it anyway. Yeah, I know they're, they're doing a lot of this and they're ruining a lot of kids lives and, and they're, everybody thinks it's really jolly good time and it's uh, not good at all. There, there was something you, you mentioned about uh, stuff that triggers you and on Bruce Jenner, yeah, I heard I heard you mention something on another show about what you believe probably triggered him, and I thought, wow, um, if you would share that with the audience. Sure. You know, I don't think there's one trigger, but there's usually one uh, sort of last straw that kind of can push people over. And in Jenner's case, when he won the decathlon and was the world's greatest athlete, uh, Porsche uh, gave him a new Porsche and uh, delivered it to his house with all these people standing around in the driveway, as I understand. And his younger 16-year-old brother wanted to drive the car. And so Bruce handed his little brother the keys. The little brother took the car, the Porsche, and went and picked up his girlfriend. And 45 minutes later, they were both dead from crashing into a tree with the Porsche. Well, that that's pretty heavy-duty stuff to to deal with, and uh, the grieving and the loss of a brother. I mean, that's that's traumatizing, and that's what I see with transgenders 
who people who identify as transgenders always have something they're trying to escape from. And in, in Jenner, following that, um, he had a um, auto accident in California, I believe in 2014 or 2015. Um, and uh, he was driving down the Pacific Coast Highway, towing an off-road vehicle with his Escalade Cadillac and rear-ended somebody that catapulted them across the center divider that hit head-on with another car and another person was deceased as a result of a vehicular accident. So it was only a short time after that vehicular accident that Jenner came out as Caitlin and uh, transitioned from male to female. And, and what we know about being uh, identifying as a transgender is it's a dissociation. And dissociation means that you're you, you don't want to be who you are, so you attempt to try to become someone who you can never be. And so I believe that uh, while there are many other factors probably involved in, in Bruce's case, um, that certainly was um, a, a curious possible con contributing factor with three people dying as a result of, of him uh, and automobiles. Well, my wife had a dream about Bruce. And uh, if you want to share that, Julie. Basically, it was a dream that he was coming to our house in Malibu on the beach. And as he approached the house, he was back as Bruce in a nice suit. I just was beginning to pray for him as he was approaching and welcomed him into our house with the yeah. uh, appropriate hug. So just because of this dream, I just was like, I believe that he will make a decision to uh, walk in his God-given identity. Yeah, and, and I, I, I believe that too. I, I described that on CNN TV with Carol Costello. I said, you know, um, it's sort of like, a drunk goes into a bar, you know, and he's drinking all night long and having a great time. And then uh, he goes to bed and wakes up in the morning. He's got this terrible hangover. And, and while he's, Bruce may be enjoying uh, much of the um, spotlight right now, there's going to be a time when Bruce is all alone and he's going to realize that he is not a female and um, that this was all done out of... Um, some some deep unresolved issues that he has and um yeah. and so he's going to sober up and and the lord's going to get a hold of him and and he's going to um detransition which i'm seeing quite a bit of um and even a doctor in yugoslavia who does a lot of uh, transition surgeries uh, has come out and talked about he's seeing more and more people um, not great numbers in his one clinic, but he's seeing more people request what they call detransition surgery. So um, many people uh, regret having the surgery. Um, and we know that over 40% of them attempt suicide. And when you have people attempting suicide, it's a fairly easy thing to assume that they have regrets and they are not happy because I don't know anybody that's happy with their life that's spending their time trying to end it. That's correct. I'd like to know 
uh, in your experience, did the church help you at all? Are they having classes to address uh, what your your identity is in Christ? I mean, how did you receive help from church at all other than... Well, you know, it's funny. The very first church I went to, I was Laura, and I still wanted to identify as church. And I went to the church, and and all the ladies there uh, embraced me, sat with me in church, and we had coffee after church. And I went home, and that afternoon, the senior pastor came to my house, knocked on my door, walked in. One of the ladies I'd been sitting with happened to be the pastor's wife, uh, as and I'm sitting there as Laura. And the pastor informed me, he said, he said, we don't want your kind in our church. And I said, really? I said, what kind are you looking for? So um, some churches don't do such a good job. But, um, you know, they, are, they don't do classes on, on your identity being in Christ. Uh, they struggle with people who have um, so such an outward expression of deep-seated um, issues and transgenders are without a doubt the most overt expression of um, something much deeper hurting them. So uh, they, yeah, I call them scary people for the church. Uh, transgenders just scare churches, and I, I have gone to a few churches and spoke to the church. Um, I have on my my website, uh, Transgenders Faith. Um, a request for churches if they want to sit down with the leadership and have a fireside chat and talk about how to uh, better embrace the transgender community and, and actually be effective in helping them um, detransition um, if they're not defiant and they're uh, compliant to a desire to have a relationship with Christ, they can actually be very effective. Well, you know, I think the churches need to realize they don't have to just open their doors and say, hey, we want every transgender to come in here. But if they don't start doing something soon, their children, you know, that are in the church now, they're going to find out they're struggling with the same problems and they're going to be going down the same road you did. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, I, then, I see it all the time in there, and you know, you know, this kid's struggling with it, and yet the church doesn't say anything. No, I, I, fortunately, once in a while, there's a church that'll come out. I mean, I spoke at a uh, what I would refer to as a redneck church in North Carolina, who, you know, the pastor he wears camo when he preaches on Sunday, and he says. We got to straighten these folks out. They need to hear this message. Get up here and you tell them. So, uh, you know, we we need the message out there that uh, the church is the place for uh, transgenders, but the church needs to be equipped and ready to effectively assist them, and not just be a place where they're going to look out of the corner of their eye at them and wonder what are they going to do next. You know? Yeah. And I, I believe, you know, your voice is that light to the world that, that is so in darkness right now that unless the church, the Christians get behind you and back you, it, how do you, you know, what God has called you to do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, that's a great question because, um, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. There's a lot of churches out there and, 
there's a lot of hurting people. And I think, to be perfectly honest, many pastors just flat out do not want to discuss this issue. They don't want to, they don't even have it tripping off their lips. And I'll tell you another thing that is amazing. I was uh, on staff in a very large church as the director of care ministries, uh, which was a pastoral pastoral position, but they wouldn't give me uh, the title of pastor because I had been a transgender. And further, the church didn't want anybody in the church to know um, that I was had been a transgender. They wanted it a secret rather than take the time to celebrate the redemption and restoration that Christ can have in the life of a transgender, they wanted me to remain silent. Well, unfortunately, I can, I can see that happening, but... Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're up against in getting the message out, though, until, you know, uh, the, it, transgenders are coming out and expressing what where they are and where the, how they're mixed up, in my view, but the churches uh, just clam up and are afraid to talk about it, and... Uh, there's a few churches do a great job. Don't don't get me wrong. They're they're out there and they're confronting it and and they're doing a good job. I spoke to um, a national group of um, pastors, uh, youth pastors in Colorado this year, and and they were all very interested in knowing, um, you know, how they could help um, with the growing transgender um, discussion. And so um, it's, there are churches that are really trying hard to do this. So, but there's a lot more churches that just won't touch it. It's taboo. Let's talk a little bit more about when you were Laura. Now you went and you actually got your, you changed your birth records and your driver's oh, yeah. license. Oh yeah. Now, but how can they legally do that? Isn't that uh, falsifying documents? Well, in my view, it's falsifying documents, but. Um, today, um, the, you know, they've completely bought in, the states have all completely bought into this whole idea about you can change any of these documents basically anytime you want. Today, in California, you can change, if you're a male, to be in a female without ever go, undergoing any surgery. I was going to say, that's something that Trump needs to look into while he's there. I know? wish he would. I've sent him a letter telling him I'd like to talk with... Um, with him and discuss this. Well, I, I know that during the Obama uh, reign, basically, uh, how many of the LGBT people did he put into positions? 250. And one of them was on staff in the White House that was a transgender. I don't think a lot of people realize that. No, and, and not only that, uh, most everybody he had in the administration in the White House on staff was somehow directly connected to uh, the head honchos of all the major TV networks. And as a result of Obama's pressure to push, I, I called uh, Obama the titular head of the LGBT because uh, ABC primetime television uh, with Obama in the White House, over 50% of their primetime content had LGBT uh, characters, lesbians, gays, transgenders, and others in, in their shows. And that was uh, 
a, a big push. In fact, the TV networks had uh, what they called LGBT-sensitive people uh, on the staff of the networks, and they prevented me from being on television. I can see that. Yeah. They, they, don't want, they don't want your voice heard. No, I'm the enemy. You spent eight years as Laura. Yeah. But when, when you first started, when you first went and you had the operation, you were immediately fired from your job, correct? Yeah, well, uh, I had the operation and I, I waited till I got some of the uh, documents straightened out and I had a lawyer in place and then told the company and uh, they fired me immediately on the day that I told them and they never let me back on the property. And so um, I, was, I was gone, but then my, my attorney that I had there in case something happened, uh, just so she had to leave and go to New York and couldn't represent me. So I had no legal representation and uh, was never able to regain any um, uh, legal action against American Honda Motor Company. So um, there you go. All right. And you... you you basically ended up homeless because you got divorced from your wife of 17 years at that point. And, yeah. Uh, and yeah. So, but that's kind of how you started getting back into the church was from there, right? Well, yeah, I, I mean, um, I had, I didn't always disconnect from the church. I just didn't really know how to connect with Jesus Christ. You know, that was, that was the struggle for me. You know, it's one thing to be a person going to church and it's another person to develop a personal relationship with Christ. And, and just attending church or, quote, being a religious person doesn't get you a relationship, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It takes um, obedience and uh, reverence to Christ and um and it requires you to uh, give your life up and, and turn it over to Christ. When you talk about your grandmother basically planting the seed in you, was that yeah. a demonic, you know, like no. a demon or something? No, I don't see it that way. It's just how I can express to people listening what happens in your thinking. You just start to, it, it makes you start to believe that you were born wrong, um, that, that there's, that you really should have been a girl. I don't, that's not demonic. It's just, um, you know, young minds, a four-year-old mind is a, a fresh and fertile, untouched soil that you can plant any seed in and nurture it. Um, you know, my grandmother could have taught me how to speak Chinese at four years old. Um, she could have taught me to be a fireman or she could have taught me to be uh, probably, a, you know, play musical instruments or something constructive. We could do that with our children. Uh, but instead, um, this, is, this was the direction that um, came down the pipeline for me. And that, that's been my life struggle uh, to deal with it. Thankfully, the Lord redeemed me and restored me from uh, the madness. But um, still, um, you can't restore everything that the surgeons do uh, you still have to deal with many of the past things but 
your relationship with Christ gives you the freedom to to not have it burden you. I mean, even at that too, what whatever they try to reverse, uh, first of all, they really mutilate everything. So there's not a lot to reverse. I showed my wife a video exactly of the surgery and everything last night. But the uh, the other problem too is all the scar tissue ends up resulting in a lot more problems down the road. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some doctors doing, uh, they're they're working on doing what, what is called a phalloplasty, and they're becoming more and more successful, and I, I expect in the years to come, they'll be able to be successful at that. Unfortunately, they're developing the technology to help females become males, but what it's going to probably benefit more is the uh, male who became a female uh, it will benefit them when the technology and the surgery gets better to be able to uh, restore more of what was taken well how about you share a little bit I know that you when he when Christ restored you you had a vision and everything you want to share a leading up to that and, and what happened yeah, I mean, I'd been going to psychotherapy to deal with uh, my past and the things I was struggling with, and and alcoholism was one of them. And so, doing my fourth step, which uh, people in, that are listening to the show, if they know the fourth step, they know it's a one where you sit down and with with someone that you trust and disclose to them um, many things of the past that you want to sort of deal with and dismiss. And so uh, I did that with a, a psychotherapist who happened to be a Christian. And um, we went through this many, many pages of things that I wanted the Lord to take and, and actually lay them at his feet. And so we did that for two and a half hours. And when we were done that day, we went back into his office and began to pray and at that time, the Lord, um, I could actually see the Lord, a vision of the Lord coming to me, uh, all dressed in white with his arms stretched out. And I could see myself as a, a newborn baby. And he was picking me up and he just whispered the words, you are safe with me now forever. And then the the prayer was over and he was gone. And I realized that he had come to redeem and restore me at that moment. And so um, I've committed myself as best I can to uh, serve him uh, for the rest of my life in this capacity of trying to prevent others from uh, this totally unnecessary transgender ideology of surgery and hormones. You know, like I said earlier in the show that, I mean, I know that you probably get a lot of backlash and everything from it, but... I'm I'm glad that there are people like you that are willing to stand up and and speak for these people and you know help them. Um, well, might as well say it right now. You you have a website and your your website is called sexchangeregret.com. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's where they can go to find out all this information, and we'll have it posted. You know at the at the bottom, you want to tell them a little bit about the different things that you do and, and you know, how, sure. how you help other people work through this? Yeah, uh, you know, I have people contact me 
all the time through the website um, daily. Uh, some of them are, are asking for themselves, some of them for a, a grandson, some of them for their own kids, um, family members, sisters, brothers. Um, they're asking me to help them um, find um, some kind of way to help them understand that they don't need to go through this surgical procedure and the hormones, or if they've gone through it, how they can find help to detransition. And um, so I do that. Also, I've traveled um, to Italy, Canada, Australia, recently Hong Kong, um, to speak to colleges. I've spoken at Rutgers University, Princeton, the University of Hong Kong. I've been on television uh, documentaries in Russia, the UK, Australia. I've uh, done a show that's very much like 60 Minutes in Canada. It's called 16 by 9. Um, so I, I you know, reach uh, an estimated 300 million people a year with the message. Um, and uh, if people want to help um, keep me going, uh, they can go to walthire.com and there's a, a donate button. I'm not a 501. I don't have... Um, huge resources. I survive solely on people's generous gifts uh, so that I can travel and uh, speak at churches. Uh, some churches uh, are kind enough to be able to pay um, an honorarium and some aren't. So we survive. I'll be uh, on Wednesday, I'll be 77 years old. So um, I'm um, I'm getting up in my years, but still cranking and, and can use all the support I can get. But I, I I work to help anybody and everybody I can. I've never, ever charged anybody in 10 years a dime for giving them guidance or working working through the issues they have. I've had people call me the day they were thinking about committing suicide, and one of them I spent um, months with. And eventually, uh, he, he was able to overcome his desire to take his life, and he's now restored himself and is back working again. And um, and so he was distraught over having done the surgery to the degree that he just wanted to blow his brains out. And so, with um, with the Lord's help and tenacity, um, uh, we we were able to sort of pull him off the ledge. It uh, doesn't mean his life is totally um, uh, good. He still struggles, but um, at least uh, that's what we do. Uh, we we help everybody we can. And um, for the people who don't like what I do, I don't pay much attention to them because um, I'm only assigned by the Lord to help the people who really want help. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, Julie, did you have anything you wanted to say? Yeah, I did. I was just sitting there thinking about today at a prayer group, there was a young lady who brought up two of her friends have already approached her on this issue. And I was just wondering, if you had a friend say that they had desires to become a a female or, or mentioned any of this verbiage, what would be the first thing that you would suggest for people to do at that moment when somebody just brings you information that you didn't even expect? 
Yeah, well, I've had that happen, and and um, I had it happen just a couple of days ago. Um, so uh, what what I do is um, I begin to talk to them, and and if if they have any idea of what happened that traumatized them, because I always know something happened. So uh, the the first thing that you want them to do is have a good enough relationship with that person where they can sit down and have a cup of coffee with them and say, gee, when did this start? Because we know you're not born that way, but what happened? And uh, like the one a couple of days ago, we found out that the person also had been sexually molested. And so people want to escape the pain. And that's why I use the word dissociate. So we, we need to find out why the person wants to change genders and and once the person hears from somebody else that, you know, do you realize that this, uh, your desire to change genders is because you were uh, traumatized, you were sexually abused, you were emotionally abused, or physically abused, or abandoned, or it sort of changes their perspective uh, because, um, you know, you're showing an interest in them, and I think that in of itself helps them a great deal just to know that you care enough to ask. That's easy enough to understand where to go with with it and to yeah. honestly it's just to allow them to talk and open up. That's right. That's exactly right. You want to you create a, a safe place for them to be willing to share that knowing that you're not going to blab it around the world that you're just uh, interested in in hearing how they got hurt just for me alone walt this was very educational when i started kind of doing research and stuff and hearing you talk and, and you know and probably a lot of other people automatically assume that all these transgender people are homosexual and uh, you know so there's little things you start realizing going wait a minute you know because that's kind of what the you've heard over the years and and uh, so um i'm really glad you came on today and really enjoyed the show and, and by the way let me be the first to tell you happy birthday oh thank and, you yeah uh, well it was great yeah. to be on and uh you know anytime i'm on the same set or show or conference with uh the homosexuals that are there i always kind of make fun with them and we we enjoy each other but i always say you know i just do not understand those homosexual people at all so i'll just let them tell their story because i don't really know any transgenders who are homosexual all right well i appreciate it and i guess that's a wrap thank you very much 